I'm completely wired. The, uh, thank you, Yossi. Shavuot Tov, everyone. Uh, once again, we have the opportunity of beginning a new week with the study of some old texts, old texts that are still vibrant and repercussive, texts that are written by the Rambam. Uh, two weeks ago, we peered into the mind of Maimonides um, uh, through the medium of one such text. It was the Hakdama to uh, Sefer Mitzvot, the introduction to the Book of Commandments, uh, which uh, was a uh, self-conscious, uh, programmatic type of document, and it served for us as a window through which we gazed into the thought processes of the Rambam as he composed and planned his magnum opus, the Mission of Torah, and also provided us with a little bit of insight into the Rambam's salient uh, intellectual and personal traits. Tonight, we're uh, integrating several Maimonidean sources, blending them together in order to uh, develop uh, an understanding of the Rambam's attitude towards so-called secular studies, in particular toward the question of the relationship, if any, between the oral law, the Torah Shabbat on the one hand, and the disciplines of the liberal arts and sciences on the other. Is there a relationship? The Rambam will, uh, will discuss that. Uh, what we'll try to do is build up the Rambam's position uh, in such a way that we create an edifice consisting of uh, four, uh, uh, four levels. Uh, by the time we get to the third level of this edifice, you'll see that his position is somewhat controversial. By the time we get to the fourth level, the position will elicit comments like that of uh, Rav Yosef Cairo, who writes in the Kesef Mishnah, uh, the Rambam wrote what he wanted, the Halavai Shalonachtav, and better that it were not written. Or the comment of the Ritva who said simply, the Lord will atone uh, for the Rambam. Uh, these strong words, but the Rambam took a strong position. And the edifice that he constructed uh, uh, had to uh, weather many storms over the centuries, uh, yet continues, I think, to stand uh, firm and tall. Uh, with that, we turn to the first of the texts in front of you. You should all have uh, access, I hope, to these handouts. Okay, then more people. Uh, the first text, yeah, the first text um, is the one that has on the left-hand side, on the bottom, chapter 71. If you see that, um, should be the first, the first page. Okay. Chapter 71. What you have in front of you here is an excerpt from The Guide of the Perplexed, the Maren of Uchim of the Rambam, Part 1, Chapter 71. Uh, the first sentence, reading the first sentence of this text, will already advance us to the first level of this edifice that we're constructing. But in order to read this sentence, I have to preface uh, with a few other sentences of background. Uh, so I'll do that right now. Uh, here's the background. Medieval religious philosophers, the be they Jewish, Christian, or Muslim, acknowledged and recognized two authoritative sources of truth, two bodies of knowledge. One of them you might call revelation. For Jews, that means the knowledge found in Torah Shabbatav and Torah Shabbatav, in the written law and the oral uh, Torah. Uh, and the other source of knowledge, the other body of knowledge, 
uh, it's sometimes referred to as reason, or you could refer to it as the philosophic tradition. The word philosophy or philosophia for a medieval philo uh, religious philosopher meant basically the entire traditional liberal arts and sciences that you'd find in a college curriculum. All that which is to be found in the Aristotelian corpus of writing, because Aristotle was the most authoritative figure in the philosophic tradition uh, when it came to uh, medieval thinkers. Uh, Aristotle wrote, for example, on math, on logic, on biology, on physics, on metaphysics, on ethics, on uh, psychology. So all of these topics uh, comprise uh, the philosophic tradition. And any medieval philosopher, Jewish or not Jewish, uh, recognized uh, these two authoritative bodies of knowledge, that which is the truths that are contained in Revelation and the truths that are contained in the philosophic tradition. It was axiomatic to them that there, is, there can be no contradiction between those two bodies of knowledge because uh, they both emanate from the same author. God is the author of Revelation. God is also the author of human reason, so there cannot be. What, what happens when they encounter an apparent contradiction? That's not our topic for this evening. There's much to say about that. Uh, but what I wanted to say in order to get to our first sentence is that not only do medieval philosophers uh, posit that there is no contradiction between the truths of uh, Revelation and the truths of the philosophic tradition, but they believe that you can apply the truths of the philosophic tradition to the religious tradition. You can use it. You can use those principles in order to demonstrate and better understand religious beliefs and religious principles. Thus, for example, uh, principles of Aristotelian physics, principles of motion and causality will be applied toward demonstrating the existence of God or demonstrating the incorporeality of God, that God has no physical faculty or the unity of God or using principles of ethics uh, for uh, understanding rationales uh, for the mitzvah. The Rambam um, was a master at, the application, at this uh, task of the application of philosophic principles to the religious tradition. And what he did in uh, the chapters subsequent, uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, prior to chapter 71 here in the Guide of the Perplexed, and also subsequent to it, uh, was uh, to indeed use physics in order to prove the existence of God or the incorporeality of God. Uh, he worked on philosophic reasons for the commandments. Uh, in fact, in part one of the guide, chapters 31 to 34, he even um, explains uh, pedagogically the proper order of studying those philosophic sciences of the philosophic tradition. That is, you should study logic before you study physics, you should study physics before you study metaphysics. And he goes through that order. Okay, with that said, we can turn to the first sentence. Here in part one, chapter 71 of the Mora, of the Guide of the Perplexed. Says the Rambam, know that the many sciences devoted to establishing the truth regarding these matters that have existed in our religious community have perished because of the length of the time that has passed, because of our being dominated by the pagan nations, and because, as we have made clear, it is not permitted to divulge these matters to all people. Now, the Rambam is engaging here in an explanation uh, of some kind. The first line, the word uh, sciences, we know what that means now. The many sciences, that is, the truths of the liberal arts and sciences of the philosophic tradition, whether it's physics, metaphysics, whatever the case may be, that are devoted to establishing the truth regarding these matters. What does the word matters mean in the second line? That means matters of religious belief, matters of the religious tradition. 
So we can understand it now. The many sciences that are used from the philosophic tradition that are applied toward the understanding of the religious tradition have perished. He says a lot of that knowledge has disappeared. Principles of, uh, of um, psychology and metaphysics or whatever, we don't have it, says the Rambam writing in the 12th century in the Jewish community. We don't see them in treatises anywhere. Why? And he gives three reasons. Because of the time that has passed, somehow this has been lost. Uh, because of our being dominated by the pagan nations and because it's not permitted to divulge these matters to all people. Also because these kinds of principles and truths from, say, metaphysics are not disseminated widely to everyone, for everyone to read when they're young uh, as kids, but rather you have to teach it to a select few when they're trained to understand how to apply these principles to religious beliefs. Otherwise, they may use it uh, unwisely or incorrectly. For all of these reasons, he says, the philosophic, uh, the knowledge of the philosophic tradition has disappeared from among the Jewish people. Now, this explanation of the Rambam assumes something very fundamental, a fundamental premise, namely, what's the assumption here underlying this explanation? Ah, that it was there, right. Very important, this, we have now advanced to level one of our edifice that we constructed. First point the Rambam makes is that indeed, in antiquity, Jews cultivated the philosophic sciences. They knew it. Otherwise, what's the point in explaining why it disappeared? Obviously, he's assuming that indeed Jews in antiquity knew this material. That's point number one. Now, is this a chiddush? Is it something novel? No, actually, because uh, uh, nothing controversial here. Uh, many medieval uh, writers, whether Jewish, Christian, or Islamic, uh, all the way down to the 18th century, I'll quote you Voltaire in a moment, uh, many believed uh, that um, Jews originally knew this, these, uh, the truths of these sciences. The Greeks either learned it, borrowed it, or plagiarized it from the Jews, and eventually uh, it made its way uh, to the Arabs who conquered much of, uh, of uh, Europe, Asia, etc., and translated it to Arabic. Yeah, Andrew? Oh, okay, so here, leave that to the second level. I'll come to that. Uh, the, uh, now, uh, uh, the uh, Voltaire, actually, I mentioned before, actually what I just said was that is an inversion of the modern standard position on the history of philosophy. It's usually assumed that the Greeks uh, cultivated these sciences. Uh, it was translated by uh, the conquering Arabs into Arabic. Uh, who translated Aristotle and provided Arabic commentaries, made it available to Jews, who then wrote Hebrew commentaries. Jews and Arabs together translated all this material into Latin, so that there were the Latin churchmen, the schoolmen in Europe, who were able to use this philosophic tradition. That's the, this is an inversion of that tradition. Um, yeah, Mark? Yeah. Oh, that's common. Halevi has it, part two... Chapter, uh, paragraph 66, in, in the Kuzir. Yeah, not just Jewish. Uh, here, listen to Voltaire, writing in, uh, in his Philosophical Dictionary in 1756. So Voltaire has his entry on Jews and Judaism. It's filled with anti-Jewish uh, remarks, important for other reasons. But here's one line that I want you to hear. It says, Voltaire, anyone who claims that the Greeks took their knowledge from the Jews is like someone who claims that the Romans learned their crafts from the inhabitants of Lower Brittany. Uh, he's polemicizing here 
against those who would uh, uh, dare uh, assume that indeed the Greeks learned everything from the Jews. The fact that he has to polemicize in the middle of the 18th century tells you indeed that this, uh, this view uh, somehow made its way all the way into uh, the mid-18th century. It was certainly more common prior to that. Oh, for rejecting this? He, there's not much of a source work in that entry there. He just, these are, these are assertions. Uh, he also asserts that uh, uh, some very negative things about Jews, but nevertheless he says they should not be burned at the stake. Why he says that, uh, that happens to go back to a, the, uh, certain elements of the uh, doctrine of the church fathers, uh, but uh, that's for a different lecture. Yes, sir? Yeah, okay, let me, give me a minute on that, uh, on, on the relationship between, you know, prior days and all that. Okay, uh, I'll build, I have to build the edifice a little higher. The, we're still, uh, uh, okay. The, okay, now the Rambam, uh, I might note, this is a side point, the Rambam never even goes this far. Not only is, uh, is what he's saying here not a Chiddush on this first level of the edifice, but he doesn't even claim anywhere that uh, the Greeks uh, stole uh, this material from the Jews, unlike others, uh, Halevi, for example. Uh, he just asserts in a number of places that Jews, independent of Greeks, uh, also cultivated uh, these sciences. Certainly, he would assume there were parallels between what the Jews studied and what the Greeks studied, because for uh, the Rambam, Aristotle is ha-philosoph, with Hey Hayidia, the philosopher, uh, the, the highest that one could achieve without, as he says in one letter, without the benefits of divine inspiration when it comes to the sciences. So he would assume that there was a great deal of affinity between what the Jews studied and what the Greeks studied, but as far as he's concerned, they studied it independently. In fact, in one place in the introduction to his commentary in the Mishnah, uh, he, he mentions a philosophic concept, and he says, uh, uh, you can find this also in Chachmei Umot Olam in the non-Jewish scholars as well, even though they didn't see and hear this from the Jews, they also had it. Uh, so you see that same idea. Okay, so this is level one. Jews in antiquity cultivated the sciences of the philosophic tradition. Now the Rambam goes a step further, the second level. That's to be found, same text that we... Sorry, yes. Okay. Uh, am I still wired? Okay. Okay, second level. In chapter 71, same page. Down at the bottom here on the left-hand side. You recall that one of the reasons the Rambam gave for the disappearance of the philosophic uh, uh, tradition from among the Jewish people was that it's a somewhat esoteric tradition. That is, it's only to be taught to a select few at a time. You don't... Uh, disseminated widely because you're dealing with some serious matters. You don't want people on their own to take physics and metaphysics and decide how to interpret religious beliefs. So, uh, so it wasn't put into treatises that everyone could, uh, could easily obtain, and that's one of the reasons that it disappeared. Now the Rambam uh, suddenly formulates a Kalvachomer, and this will take his uh, position one step further. The next to last line, uh, on the left-hand column, middle of the line. You already know, says the Rambam, that even the legalistic science of law 
was not put down in writing in the olden times because of the precept which is widely known in the nation. And now he quotes the Gemara in Kiddushin, uh, in Gitan, I'm sorry, Daf uh, Samach, uh, words that I have communicated to you orally, you are not allowed uh, to put down in writing. Uh, so here's, he's, he's working out this Kal V'chomer. He says, after all, even the legalistic part of the law was not supposed to be put down in writing. You recall that Rav Yehuda Nasi, Rebbe, codified the Mishnah in approximately the year 200, but, but there's not Torah, there's a prohibition against writing down the oral tradition. That's the Gemara in Gittin. And the Rambam has to uh, explain all this in the introduction to Mishnah Torah. He explains that Rebbe had to do what he did because the times required extraordinary um, action. Uh, since there was persecution, the Torah would have been lost unless it was written down. Uh, therefore, he had to uh, actually put together the Mishnah. But normally, you would not write down the, the, uh, the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral tradition, the oral law. So now, uh, we'll skip the next uh, few lines. We'll come back to it, though. If you go down to the asterisk, which is about uh, uh, 12 lines down, on the next the side, page 275, if it says on top, Okay. Uh, now, he continues his Kavachamah. Now, if there was insistence that the legalistic science of law should not, in view of the harm that would be caused by such a procedure, be perpetuated in a written compilation accessible to all the people, then all the more could none of the mysteries of the Torah, Sitrei Torah, have been set down in writing and be made accessible to the people. This is very interesting, this Kavachamah. Uh, the whole language of it is interesting. Uh, he says, if the legalistic part of the oral law cannot be written down, now already that term implies that there's more than one part to the oral law. There's the legalistic part, and then there's another part. What's the other part? He refers to it in the end of the Kavachomer as the mysteries of the Torah, the Sitrei Torah. What, what is the content of the mysteries of the Torah? Obviously, it's what he was talking about in the first sentences of this chapter, the many sciences devoted to establishing the truth regarding these matters, the ones that have disappeared from the Jewish community. So if you couldn't write down the legalistic part of the law, then certainly uh, uh, Chazal did not want to write down the Sidre Torah, that is, those principles of the philosophic tradition and of the sciences that could be used uh, to better understand religious beliefs, to better understand revelation. That certainly, that part cannot be written down. But you see the implication of this Kalvachomer. The fact that the context of this Kalvachomer is suddenly the oral law, the Torah Shabbatah, and the fact that the Rambam uses terminology which implies that there's more than one part to this Torah Shabbatah, implies very strongly that the truths of the philosophic tradition, whatever is true in physics and metaphysics and can be used, to understand religious uh, principles was actually not only cultivated by the Jews in antiquity, it was part of the oral tradition. It was part of the, the authoritative Torah Shabal Peh, just like the legalistic part was. Now he's uh, uh, imbuing uh, this, these uh, truths, these principles with a great deal of authority. It's part of the authoritative Torah Shabal Peh, the oral tradition originally to Moses at Sinai and down to the rabbis and down to our own time as it was transmitted. So this is quite a bit of, uh, quite a jump from level one now to level two of our edifice. Joe. So, he said that the, that the mysteries of the Torah that uh, the Rabbah refers to are the means tools by which, uh, I just want to... Yeah, okay. Okay. 
I don't see why you have to uh, go back a step with that because because the, I think there's an identity according to the, the whole context is the many sciences that he's already been applying in the previous 70 chapters. For example, he was using uh, uh, the principles of the philosophic tradition in order to understand anthropomorphic uh, passages in the Torah. So he says these these uh, principles. That's the mysteries of it. So that's the Sitre Torah. So this is uh, level two now. Yeah. Yeah. To a Kabbalist is more than a possibility. It's a certainty. But the Rambam is not a Kabbalist. We'll come back to that when we get to Pridus. Give me uh, when we get to level three. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I the, uh, the Rambam does have an interesting um, parish on that Mishnah. I'm trying to remember it, uh, but it's uh, uh, but that's it, it does it, it's it, it, it's not a problem of any kind. It's just that uh, anything that's Chachma for the Rambam uh, will take on a new connotation because of this identification of the uh, uh, truth of the philosophical tradition with part of the Mesorah, the Torah Shavuot By doing that, that means that uh, the Rambam will uh, assume that references to Chachma are references to that part of the Torah Shavuot This will, yeah. Yeah, I think that would better off the whole question. Yeah. Oh, okay. Some of them get answered all the way. Okay. Uh, um, we'll go, we'll revert to uh, the uh, the uh, procedure we used last time. Uh, we took questions that, uh, at the end and uh, somehow... Uh, somehow that works, but, uh, but your questions are good. Uh, I'll try to answer them as we continue. Um, okay. The, a, a short digression uh, before we move to level three. Level three, by the way, uh, will take us to the next page and to a halachic context. It'll take us to the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. And of course, uh, if you think about it for a moment, it's the logical extension of what we just said. If indeed... Uh, these philosophic sciences are part of the Torah Shabbat, part of the authoritative oral tradition, then what about the issue of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah? How does that affect the commandment uh, to study? What are we supposed to study? What are we mandated to study? So, indeed, uh, this position that we've outlined thus far will be confirmed in the Mishnah Torah as well, in the laws of Talmud Torah. But before we get to that, a word about the lines that we skipped on uh, the right-hand column. Uh, because it's worthy of, uh, of notes, and it's uh, a novel view uh, here uh, highlighted by the Rambam. On the third line, um, uh, just after quoting the Gemara in Gittin, the Rambam quoted the Gemara that said, Dvarim Shebalpeh, things that are oral, part of the oral tradition, in Chavrashai, you're not allowed to put them into writing. Okay? It's supposed to remain oral. Uh, the Rambam digresses for a minute here before he finishes his Chavachomer that we went through already uh, to get into the reason for that prohibition. Why is it that the oral tradition had to remain oral and was not to be written down? Why not write it down? Okay, the famous question. The Rambam gives a, a new answer to it. What's the usual answer? The traditional answer to it, uh, probably the most uh, oft-quoted answer, is the one that's found in Midrash Rabbah. In uh, the rabbis, in Shmot Rabbah, Say the following. Uh, here it is. Uh, on the Pasuk in uh, Shemot, uh, uh, 
Tav lecha tadvarim ha'ela. We just had it. Kitisa. Here it is. Uh, so the uh, Medrash creates a dialogue uh, between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, according to the Medrash, HaKadosh uh, Baruch Hu taught Moshe Rabbeinu the entire oral tradition, whatever he had to know in terms of what became uh, uh, Mishnah and, uh, and Talmud. And then Moshe, and then he said, Limdali Israel, now go teach this to the rest of uh, B'nai Israel. Amr Lefanov. So according to Medrash, Moshe now said to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Ribbono Shalolam, Echtova Talahem. Let me write it down. It'll be easier if I just write it all down and give it to them that way. Amalo Hashem said to him, Eini Mevakesh Lidnalahem Bechtav. I don't want this to be written down, the oral tradition, this interpretation of the written scriptures. Why? Because I know, I can foresee that in the future, uh, other nations will subjugate and dominate Am Yisrael. B'nai Yisrael will be a minority in exile, in diaspora among those nations. And now the other nations will try to usurp uh, the, Jew- the classical Jewish works, that is what they call the Old Testament, of ours. Ella, so what will I do? Ella hamikra ninoten lahem bechtav. I'll give you the basic text of Chamisha Chamshi Torah, of the Torah itself, in written form. Vahamishna, vatalmud, vagada ninoten lahem alpeh. But the rest, the interpretation of that will remain oral. She'im yavohu motolam vishtabdu bahem. So that if the other nations come and indeed subjugate B'nai Yisrael, yihiyumuv dalim mehem. This oral tradition will still keep Am Yisrael distinctive. They'll still keep them distinctive in their interpretation because the danger is that as a minority in the diaspora where the majority culture has usurped and reinterpreted your basic text, then the danger is that you will gradually assimilate to that uh, majority interpretation or reinterpretation. So this will keep you distinct because they're not going to usurp the oral interpretation. And indeed, uh, historically, it's only uh, really not until the 13th century that you have the Dominican uh, uh, creating schools to study uh, Hebrew and the oral tradition to be used in polemics and missionizing uh, when they realized they were too dependent on apostate Jews and trying to get to this source of knowledge. Uh, but they didn't uh, know it for many centuries. Uh, uh, in the 16th century, there's an apostate, a Meshumid, by the name of uh, Sephakorn, who uh, converted to Christianity. And uh, Sephakorn actually uh, came to the church with the, the same idea that's underscored here by the Medrash. He said to them, if you really want the Jews to uh, convert to Christianity, to give up, to lose their distinctive identity, then get rid of every single copy of Talmud. Just destroy all Talmud, because that's what's keeping them uh, distinctive, this uh, oral interpretation. So anyway, that's the usual interpretation, which you might call a national historical uh, understanding of why the oral tradition was kept oral and not to be written down uh, all those centuries. The Rambam says something else here in the text that's right in front of you. Let's look at the Rambam now on the, on the third line, uh, top of the right-hand, uh, the right-hand column, uh, the middle of the line. This precept shows extreme wisdom with regard to the law, for it was meant to prevent what has ultimately come about in this respect. And the Rambam is about to give not a national historical reason, but a literary pedagogic reason. I mean, says the Rambam, it was meant to prevent 
the multiplicity of opinions, the variety of schools, the confusions occurring in the expression of what is put down in writing, the negligence that accompanies what is written down, the divisions of the people are separated into sects, and the production of confusion with regard to actions. What the Rambam is getting at here is something that's a, um, a well-known issue in the history of ideas. It goes back, I'll quote you in a moment, from Plato has this also. And that is the question of what is the superior uh, mode of instruction? The Rambam is siding with those who say that in an ideal world, in, in, if the world were one ideal classroom, uh, then the superior way to learn is oral instruction. Oral learning, not from a written text, but orally, because the teacher who teaches you will have received that teaching from his teacher with all the nuances uh, that are necessary to be clarified, and he can then transmit it to you with all those nuances. There is no uh, 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 reason now to have distortion or misunderstanding or misinterpretation, because it's given to you in this optimal uh, environment of teacher to student uh, to, to, to the next student with all nuances clarified exactly. That's the best way to learn. And you absorb it, you pay attention, you absorb it directly. Uh, the alternative, however, uh, is, uh, could, could be the creation of tremendous uh, confusion. Because if you're learning from a written text, and this Rav Yosef Albo, uh, who is the Jewish philosopher of the early 15th century in Spain, writes in his Sefi Karim, following up on the Rambam's idea, he says that any time something is written in a text, there will be two ways to interpret it either the way the author intended or not the way the author intended in any given text. That's what Yosef Alba says, and that's the danger, that's the risk you run into if you're not presenting it uh, uh, orally. This idea appears in uh, one of the Socratic dialogues, uh, the Phaedrus, where uh, one of the gods comes, uh, one of the uh, Greek gods comes, uh, comes to the king of Egypt in this dialogue, and says, um, I have something to show you, O king of Egypt. I've invented letters, writing. He says, you're going to love this. Why? Because, he says, it will make the Egyptians wiser and will improve their memories. It is an elixir of memory and wisdom that I have discovered. But the king is not impressed. The king of Egypt uh, replies to him, uh, says, oh no. He says, one man has the ability to beget art, to invent. But the ability to judge of their usefulness belongs to another. He says, let me decide if it's good or not. And now you have been led by your affection to ascribe to them a power the opposite of that which they really possess. For this invention will produce forgetfulness in the minds of those who learn to use it because they will not practice their memory. He says, what you're going to do is rely on the fact that it's written somewhere, or rely on the notes that you took, and you never absorb the idea in your mind directly from the teacher, and then you have to figure out what it is that, that is written uh, and how to interpret it. Their trust in writing, produced by external characters which are no part of themselves, this is a phrase that Rechazai Kreskas in the 15th century quotes from Plato. Uh, he says, uh, rely on your own mind and not on the skin of dead animals when it comes to learning. That's what he means here. He says, this is produced, uh, not, don't rely on parchment. Rely on your mind. Uh, so he says, you have, invented, uh, you have invented an elixir, not of memory, but of reminding. You offer your pupils the appearance of wisdom, not true wisdom, for they will read many things without instruction and will therefore seem to know many things when they are, for the most part, ignorant and also, he adds, hard to get along with. 
because they think they know a lot. So that's another uh, problem that uh, arises uh, through writing. Now, of course, that's, this all works in an ideal world. Uh, the oral tradition is the best, is, is the superior mode of learning. Of course, as the Raman says in the introduction to the Mishnah Torah, um, Rebbe had this problem, or Yudha Nasi, that, that uh, persecution endangered the very existence of the Torah, of the oral tradition. Therefore, the uh, Mishnah had to be written, the oral tradition had to be codified. And the Raman says he had to do the same thing because he lives in a time of persecution, uh, so many sorrows. And uh, therefore, he has to write it down. But if he's going to write down the oral tradition, the Rambam tries as much as possible to keep to uh, the uh, format and goals of uh, the original um, superior formats of learning. Uh, you'll notice, remember last time, two weeks ago, when we were reading that Tzamat Sefer Mitzvah, we, we never got to it, but on, on the bottom of the second page there, the Rambam says that he ordered the Sefer Mitzvah in such an, a systematic arrangement with uh, halachot and prakim and halachot, uh, that it made it easy. Tekal, he said, He made it easy enough so that somebody could learn it orally, uh, by heart, and teach it to somebody else orally. So, the, what the, and this is why the Rambam insisted, you remember when we spoke two weeks ago on Kitsur, brevity helps to minimize the possibility of misinterpretation and distortion. So if the Rambam is going to have to write down the oral law, he wants to do it in a way that is uh, closest to the way the, the, the tradition was supposed to be transmitted, and that is orally, even if you have to write it down. Uh, so, okay, this is all a side point, but it's worthy of note, because uh, this is quite a, um, a novel uh, interpretation of why the oral law was to remain uh, oral. Now, let's get back to our building. Uh, so far, we've constructed two levels. Uh, the first level, the Rambam asserted, uh, uh, and we said that was not a chidosh uh, among medieval writers, uh, that Jews in antiquity did cultivate the sciences, did know a lot of it. On the second level, the Rambam uh, in, uh, insisted, or at least he implied, in the Kavachomer that he put together here, that uh, there is not only a legalistic part of the oral law, there is also the philosophic part. And the truths of the sciences uh, are uh, the content of that part of the oral tradition. So now he has identified the um, truth of the sciences with the Torah Shabbat. And now he moves, therefore, uh, to the next page. Uh, if, you, if you turn to the middle of your handout, you'll have on the left-hand side is the English translation. On the right-hand side is the original Hebrew of the Mishnah Torah, of the Rambam's halachic work. Because there are halachic ramifications to all of this. If indeed... Uh, principles of physics that could be used to demonstrate the existence of God were part of the pristine Torah uh, Shabbat uh, as it was originally transmitted and Chazal knew this material uh, then uh, you would think it's a mitzvah to learn it and for us to be able to apply it to religious uh, beliefs as well and indeed the Rambam comes through with that uh, but you have to see how uh, here in uh, Let's turn to Hilchot Tamatari. In the Hebrew, it's on the, the left-hand side of the Hebrew page. And in the English, it's on the right-hand side of the English. Um, so go with the Hebrew. The, the Hebrew? Okay, in translate. Okay. So on the, on the Hebrew page, uh, if you're looking on the English, it's, uh, it's paragraph... Uh, Paragraphs 11 and 12 that we are getting to now. Uh, in the Hebrew, Yid Aleph Yid Ben. 
So Yud Aleph uh, begins, Hayav man Now actually we mentioned this last time, two weeks ago, but in, for a totally different reason, a totally different context. We're not coming back to that, but we're starting, it's the same starting point. There's a Gemara in Kiddush and Daf Lamed, uh, which states that, Le'olam Tav, a person should always divide his day of study into three, uh, his curriculum of study. Shlish Mikra, a third with scripture, a Shlish Mishnah, a third with the study of Mishnah, and Shlish Talmud, or Gemara, according to one uh, variant. Um, a third of the uh, curriculum should be Gemara. So we mentioned last time that the Rambam uh, interpreted, interpreted this a uh, little bit. In, in paragraph 11, Halach Yedalef, he interprets this to mean that you should spend a third of your time on Torah Shebechtav, that's written scripture, a third of your time on Torah Shebalpeh, by that he means the whole oral law in the way of Mishnah. He's equating the Gemara's term Mishnah with the term Torah Shebalpeh. But he does that because he means, as we explained last time, Torah Shebalpeh in the way of Mishnah, Derech Mishnah, that is in terms of summary, uh, codificatory form, like you have in the Mishnah or in the Mishnah Torah, the normative decision. And then what's left over, the third part of study, which the Gemara calls Gemara, uh, or Talmud, he calls, uh, in paragraph 11, uh, reflection, deducing conclusions from premises, developing implications of statements. In other words, learning that same material of the oral tradition, but learning it be'ian, learning it uh, intensively, uh, with all the richness of the halakhic give and take, that's Talmud. Okay? Now what interests us today, tonight, is the following in paragraph 12. Continues the Rambam. Ketan, how does this work, this division of the curriculum? Haya balumanut, so if you're a typical craftsman, so you work three hours a day, I don't know if that includes commuting or not, uvetorah tesha, and uh, you learn Torah nine hours a day, okay? So now, how do you divide up your nine hours uh, of learning during this typical day? Otan ha-tesha, korei b'shalosh me'en b'tar So the first three hours, um, of those, of those uh, nine hours, three of them you study written scripture, Torah Shabbatav, u b'shalosh b'tar and uh, three uh, hours you, you do Torah Shabbatav in the way of Mishnah, more uh, summary form. And a third, you try to get into the Shaklavataria of the Gemara, into the halachic give and take. Now, if you go down in the, uh, to the end of the next line in the Hebrew, uh, or one line down in the English, Now, Rabbah makes a very significant statement. He says, that which is referred to as pardes, is part of the third section of what you're obligated to learn, part of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. Uh, that is, Pardes is part of Gemara, and it's part of the mitzvah of Torah. So what is Pardes? Pardes literally, of course, means uh, a garden of some sort, um, which is uh, figuratively used to refer to a garden of knowledge, usually esoteric types of knowledge. Uh, now, if you look at... Um, uh, uh, let's see, the left-hand side of your page in English, paragraph 13, and in the Hebrew, Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah Halacha Yud Gimel, the right-hand side of your Hebrew page, we're looking now at a different part of the Mishnah Torah, okay? We're moving to Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah, the laws of the fundamentals of the Torah. The Rambam here explains to us what Pardes is. Says the Rambam, uh, 
ענייני ארבעה פרקים אלה שבחמש מצוות האלו, הם שהחכמים הראשונים קוראים אותו פרדס. He says, what is פרדס? It's what we discussed in the first four chapters uh, prior to this. He's writing now, this is chapter four. I should have prefaced by saying, this is chapter four of the laws of the fundamentals of the Torah, Hilchot Yisrael Torah, paragraph 13. So, and it's the very beginning of the Mishnah Torah. He says, what we just discussed in the first four chapters leading up to this paragraph is Pardes. That's what it is. It's Pardes. Um, as he continues, As the Gemara says in Tractate Chagiga, when he talks about the four great scholars, the Tanaim, who tried to enter the Pardes of esoteric knowledge of, of some sort or another, and only Rabbi Akiva came out to Shalom, came out whole and in peace. Um, uh, with himself and with this knowledge. Uh, so that's what the Chazal meant there, Pardes. Uh, uh, okay? So we now know what Pardes is. It's what the Rambam talked about in the first four chapters of his book. So what did he talk about in the first four chapters? Um, so if you look at um, chapter 2, uh, uh, I think it's uh, Halacha 11, Yud Aleph, the Rambam uh, completes the second chapter. You don't have that in front of you. The Rambam completes the second chapter of, of these laws. And he says, what I just discussed in the first two chapters is called Ma'asemer Kava. It's called by the rabbis the work of the chariot, referring to the, chari- the, uh, the vision of the divine realm that was seen by the prophet Ezekiel, Yechezkel, in the first chapter of Yechezkel. The work of the chariot. And if you look a few paragraphs before the paragraph that we just read, in chapter 4 of Hilchot Yisraeli Torah, the Rambam says, what I just talked about in chapters 3 and 4 is what the rabbis called uh, the work of creation, okay, that deals with the, the nature of creation itself. Okay? Uh, so now we have the beginning of an equation. Uh, Pardes, the, the Rambam said, equals what he spoke about in the first four chapters of his book. The first four chapters, he told us, he spoke about Maseh Merkava and Maseh Bereshit. So Pardes equals Maseh Bereshit and Maseh Merkava. The, the two uh, terms are used in the Mishnah in Chagiga, uh, where Chazal say that you should be very careful about the dissemination of the knowledge of Maseh Bereshit and Maseh Merkava, the work of the chariot and the work of creation. You should only teach the work of creation to one student at a time, and the work of the chariot, you should not even teach one student at a time unless that student is properly trained and, uh, uh, and wise enough. Okay? So this is Pardes equals Master Bresh Master So what is the content of Master Bresh and Master Makov, the work of the chariot and the work of creation? Uh, so here, um, if you read the first four chapters, you'll know, but a shortcut uh, to understanding what it is is to read the Rambam's comments in his commentary on the Mishnah, on that Mishnah in Chagiga that says you have to be careful about teaching Master Bereshit and Master Merkava. Says the Rambam, what is Master Bereshit and what is Master Merkava? Master Bereshit, the work of creation, is Mata'eh HaTeva. It's the natural sciences. It's physica, physics. And Mata'eh, and uh, Master Merkava, the work of the chariot, is Mata'eh HaLohut. That's the term used by medieval philosophers for metaphysics. Principles uh, the same terms they would use when referring to the Aristotelian tradition of physics and metaphysics. In fact, later Rishonim, for example, our Shimon ben Semach Duran in the 15th century, referring to the Rambam, says, everyone knows the Rambam identified Master Bereshit with physica and Master Merkava with metaphysica. 
Uh, and um, now we can complete our equation then. If Pardes equals Matzah and Matzah Merkava, and Matzah and Matzah Merkava equal physics and metaphysics, that means that Pardes equals the truth of physics and metaphysics. And that means when the Rambam says Pardes is part of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, it's included under the rubric Gemara, he means it's a mitzvah, part of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, to study the principles of these sciences in order, of course, for, for one reason, in order to apply them, uh, as he does in the Guide of Perplex, toward issues of the religious tradition, to use uh, physics uh, in order to understand the incorpor- to demonstrate the incorporeality of God, for instance, or to understand how to interpret apparent anthropomorphic expressions in the Torah. So, studying this material, which is part of the traditional liberal arts and sciences, uh, is actually, according to the Rambam, uh, Pardes, he is not a Makobo, therefore he did not identify uh, Pardes with, um, and Matzabert Matzabert with Kabbalah. Kabbalists do, but uh, philosophers don't. Uh, there are a few uh, attempts in the 14th century in particular to try to synthesize this, to combine, to make, Matzabert, to make Pardes both philosophy and Kabbalah, but usually it's one or the other. Uh, they're competing for authority here. And the Rambam, uh, uh, feels that philosophy, the truths of philosophy, are the very content of Pardes. And he has just said that Pardes is part of the Mitzvah Talmud Torah. So now we have level three of our edifice. Level one was that Jews cultivated the sciences in antiquity. Level two, that the truths of those sciences were in fact part of the authoritative oral tradition. And level three is that therefore the truths of those uh, disciplines should indeed be studied as part of the Mitzvah Talmud Torah because they are uh, the very definition of Pardes, which is included by the Rambam in Tamatar. Is everybody happy with this level three? No. The, uh, Rav Yosef Karo in the Shulchan Aruch, in, in Yoridea, uh, take a look at it sometime. Hilchot Tamatar, the laws of Tamatar. He, uh, he quotes almost verbatim uh, the two paragraphs that we just saw in the Mishnah Torah, paragraph 11 and paragraph 12, as he often does. The Rav Yosef Karo is... Uh, uh, highly influenced uh, by the Rambam in all of his work. And he quotes uh, these two paragraphs, but he leaves out one line. Open up the Shulchan Aruch, you'll see. He left out the line about Pardes. He said he did not include Pardes. He might have himself thought that Kabbalah might uh, uh, be part of Pardes, but he didn't want to get into that. He certainly did not want the baggage attached to it by the Rambam by quoting it uh, as part of the Rambam's. Uh, formulation, hence he left out that one line that Pardes is part of Gemara. Uh, there's a reason it was deliberate. But uh, it's, it's now when we move to the fourth level uh, that the criticism becomes uh, much more strident and the controversy really erupts. Um, okay, let's move then to the fourth level. Um, Okay, uh, stay where you are on the, on the same page. I'm going to quote you or paraphrase for you a Gemara, a Talmudic comment that appears in Tractate Sukkah, Daf Kachet, 28, page 28b. Uh, I'll just find it here. Okay, here it is. Amru Alav al Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai. It was said about the great Tana, the Tanaitic sage of the uh, first century. You know, he was the Tana who 
who managed to escape from the city during the uh, destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash and then dealt with the, uh, negotiated with the emperor, Vest- uh, he then became emperor later, Vespasian, uh, to save Yavna v'chachamaha. So this is what they said about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, according to the Gemara in Sukkah. Shalohi niach mikro mishnah gemara lechot v'agadot. He didn't leave anything unstudied. That's what the Gemara means. He studied everything there was to know. Whether it was Mikra, Mishnah, Gemara, Halacha, Agadah, Dikduke Torah, Dikduke Sofrim, Gezerot Shavot, Kufot, Gematriot, uh, everything, Mishalot, anything there was to learn, he learned it and studied it. And then, after the long list, the Gemara uh, concludes, Davar Gadol, Davar Katan. He studied great matters and small matters. We finally got to the title of the, tonight's talk. Um, great matters and small matters. So naturally, the Gemara feels the need now to explain what is meant by great matters and small matters. After all, we just finished an entire list uh, that uh, an inventory of everything he studied. So, what are the great matters and the small matters? Continues the Gemara: Davar Gadol Ma'asemer Kava. Great matters is the work of the chariot. That's this, uh, the divine. Something to do with the workings of the divine realm. Davar Katan Havayota Ba'ivarava. And the small matter is the deliberations of Abaye and Rava. Abaye and Rava are two of the greatest Amoraim who lived uh, around the beginning of the 4th century of the Common Era, uh, quoted throughout the Talmud. Um, okay? Now, this Gemara, taken at face value, is, is surprising. It sounds strange. I mean, the Gemara, you would think, is the la- uh, would be the last, the Chachamah of the Gemara would be the last to ever call the Havayot Abai Virava, which is the, the very stuff, it's the very essence of, the, of, the, of Shas, of Gemara, to call it a small matter. That's what it's all about. And that's what we need to know on a daily basis, how to live. The Havayot Abai Virava. It doesn't make sense for Chazal to call that a small matter. And indeed, if you look at the traditional interpretation of this Gemara, of Rashi, Rabbeinu Hananel, and others, here are Kochi, Rabbeinu Hananel, indeed, it's, it's not to be taken literally at face value. No one takes it that way, except we'll see in a moment for the Rambam. Uh, Rabbeinu Hananel says as follows, HaKushot Shehayuno Simfonot Ninba Akshava Bayi Verava Peshutot Usturot Hayu Mechuvanot Biyad Rivan According to Rabbeinu Hananel, Rashi says much the same thing. This entire Gemara, this comment of the Gemara at the end, is being written from the perspective and vantage point of Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai. If you look at the Havayot of Abayi Verava, the, the things that, um, that Abayi and Rava deliberated about in all of their sophisticated deliberations, from the vantage point of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, so to him, it was, the whole thing was the Davar Katan. He didn't need these sophisticated deliberations because he was a leading Tana of centuries before, of the time of the Mishnah, for him, that which perplexed Abai and, and, and Rava was perfectly clear. He didn't need all of that, uh, all of those deliberations. So from the vantage point of Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai, Matzah Merkava, he needs to learn, that's a big thing, but Havayot Abai and Rava would be a small thing, because uh, he knew all this clearly, uh, it, it just became a little muddled by the time it got to Abai Rava, and they had to sort it out. Uh, this is, uh, now of course the, the implication of that interpretation is that for anyone who lives after Abayi Varava, 
then yes, Havayot Abay Barava are Zavar Gadol indeed. As the Ritva says, there's nothing more Gadol than that uh, for, for us in the period uh, subsequent to Abay Barava. But the, now look at the Rambam in front of you. It says the Rambam, we're looking at, um, in the Hebrew, it's the Sodei HaTorah again, where we just were. Um, Perak Dalit Halacha Yud Gimel. In the English, it's the left-hand side, um, uh, paragraph 13 again. And let's uh, read it again. Uh, he, uh, he started it by saying, uh, the, four prop, the four chapters uh, that precede this, that's what the rabbis called Pardes, as was said, four entered into the Pardes, and now he continues. Um, this is the third line of the Hebrew, and it's the end of the third line of the English paragraph. Uh, even though the four who entered the Pardes, this uh, esoteric, this uh, uh, area of esoteric knowledge, were great sages, they, not all of them were able to fully grasp these, uh, these metaphysical matters and how to apply them correctly to religious belief. Uh, and I, I say, I say that there is an order here to be followed. One should not study Pardes that uh, philosophic uh, inquiry until one has filled one's uh, stomach with uh, bread and meat. What's the bread and meat? The basics. As until you've really studied halacha, until you've filled yourself with the knowledge of what is permitted and what is forbidden, you've studied what the Rambam called the legal part of the oral tradition, that study is not only central not only indispensable, but it's prior. It's prior in time. Uh, only then, the, and now listen to what he says, and even though the rabbis called the matters of uh, halachic deliberations davar katan, he's talking about that Gemara and Sukkah, right? But notice, he doesn't say anything about Rabbi Yochan and Ben Zakkai. This is what's so different here. He's the, no one else quotes this Gemara without saying that it's from the vantage point of Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai. But the Rambam is not talking about Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai. He's, he's talking about something else. He's taking the Gemara literally, and what he's saying is the following, that in the uh, comprehensive, the pristine comprehensive scope of the oral tradition, as it originally came down to Chazan, you had the truth of all the philosophic tradition were there, of everything they need to know from the sciences, it was all there. So it's a part of the same oral tradition. But within that oral tradition, there is a hierarchy. Within that oral tradition, everything there is important. Everything there is vital. But there's a hierarchy. First, you study the, the legal part of the oral tradition, and then you advance to, the, to become a religious philosopher to demonstrate the existence and incorporeality of God, etc., etc., and unity of God, etc. And that, within the oral tradition itself, is the summit of the, uh, the knowledge of the oral tradition. So the Rambam is working here, that's the Davar Gadol, within the oral tradition. Everything in the oral tradition is, by definition, vital and important, but relative to each other, 
So one is called Devar Katan and one is called Devar Gadol. First comes the halacha that's prior, indispensable, central. You work uh, much, most of your life on it. And then if you want to reach the highest madrega, the highest possible religious level of perfection, then you have to uh, become a religious philosopher as well. That's what he's saying. That's when you, uh, that's the Davar Gadol within that rubric called the uh, Torah Shabal Peh. Now this, the, the implications of this are this and, and highly controversial. For somebody, this is why I started out the, the evening saying we, uh, that by the time we get to the fourth level, and this is it, the fourth level of the Rambam's edifice that he constructed, or we're constructing for us, um, by the time you get to this, that's where the, the Ketzev Mishnah, uh, it's right here on the page, if you can read the small print, it's actually right there on, uh, on the Hebrew, on the right-hand side, the top paragraph, uh, toward the, uh, the second half of that top paragraph, the text of Mishnah, Rav Yosef Tairo says, Haramun katav The Rambam wrote what he wanted to here, but halavai that he did not write it. Because the implication of it is that uh, observing mitzvahs 100% and studying Talmud all day uh, does not uh, make you the, does not lead you to the highest level of Shleimut. Obviously it's a high level, but it's not the highest level. You also have to be a religious philosopher to reach the highest level. And this, to, uh, this proposition has its uh, detractors and opponents. Um, Yosef Karu is one of them. Some will oppose it uh, because they feel, no, a mitzvot uh, observance and study of halacha is enough, is sufficient in itself for a person to reach the highest possible level. Some will oppose it because they feel if there is an additional dimension that has to uh, inform your, your observance, uh, then it's not philosophy, it's something else. Maybe it's Kabbalah. Uh, so they'll oppose it on that score. But many will oppose the Rambam on this point. That's why the Ritva says, quoted here by the Kesef Mishnah, uh, um, here's the whole quote, I quoted only part of it before, it's the end of that little pa- uh, paragraph, he says, uh, the Ritva, uh, says the Kesef Mishnah, the Ritva interpreted this Gemara in Sukkah the way it should be interpreted, uh, 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 that it's only referring to Rabbi Yochum and Zaka, and when it comes to us, for us, living in subsequent centuries, is nothing greater than the Havayot Dabai Virava. And said the Ritva, that's the proper interpretation of the Gemara and Sukkah, not like some others want to say, meaning the Rambam. And may Hashem atone for the Rambam on this position. Uh, but this indeed will be... Um, uh, highly uh, controversial, uh, to say the least. Uh, now, um, what I left for you, uh, what I left for next time, is uh, a discussion of the controversy over philosophy and over this position, this fourth level that the Rambam insists upon, that to reach the highest level of religious perfection, one must be not only a halachist, but a religious philosopher, not only observant, but a religious philosopher, um, I want to trace the controversy over that, uh, when it erupts, where it erupts, what are the issues that are discussed, and what was the effect, if any, of the ban of 1305 issued against the study of philosophy in Barcelona. That's for next time. Uh, I also left for you, since it's, uh, I think I'm supposed to finish probably now, right? Is this right? Okay. Uh, for your own erudition, there's one more source in, in the text of your handout. Uh, you can look on your own, try to figure that one out. That's on the, oh no, there's two more sources. Oh, so you know what? Let me say a word about the one on the left. The one on the left, 
It's a good thing you noticed this. Uh, on the left here, what you have in English, paragraph six, is uh, a page from uh, Hilcha Tshuva, the Mishnah Torah, the Rabbam, his code again, the laws of repentance of Tshuva Perak Yod, chapter 10, halacha 6. And here the Rambam says, in the, right after the parentheses on the fifth line of the paragraph, one only loves God with the knowledge with which one knows him. According to the knowledge will be the love. If the, uh, if the former be little or much, so will the latter be little or much. A person ought therefore to devote himself to the understanding and comprehension of those sciences and studies which will inform him concerning his master. As far as it lies in human faculties to understand and comprehend, as indeed we have explained in the laws of the basic principles of the Torah. What is he referring to? What we just read. Those first four uh, chapters that deal with Pardes, with Masterbesh and Master Merkava. says, if you want to reach the highest level of love of God, this is a concept of intellectual love of God. The highest level is uh, uh, through understanding of God. Not just performance of God's will, but understanding as much as possible about God himself and God's creation and God's Torah. So, according to knowledge will be the love. Therefore, he says, you need to understand those sciences which he talks about in Hilcha Yisrael Torah that can be applied to the understanding of, religious, uh, of the religious tradition. What the Rambam has done here, if the question is the legitimacy of the study of the philosophic tradition within Judaism, if you see a paragraph like this, the Rambam has turned the question on its head. It's not the legitimacy of the uh, study of these sciences. It's, it's, there's something problematic about Judaism without it, uh, the way the Rambam has turned it uh, around. And then you can look on your own at uh, the Hebrew source, which is from the commentary on the Mishnah on Sota, uh, uh, the famous Mishnah that says uh, it's prohibited to learn Chachma Yivanit, Greek wisdom. So the question is what the Rambam does with that. If it's prohibited to learn Greek wisdom, what is Greek wisdom if not the uh, Aristotelian tradition, then why the Chazal, if the Rambam is right in his reading of Chazal and their attitude towards the sciences and the role of the sciences in the Torah Shabbat, then why would the rabbis ever say it's prohibited to learn Chachma Yivanit? So go look at that yourself. You'll see that the Rambam, in the way he interprets Chachma Yivanit, neutralized, based on a Gemara in uh, Menachot, neutralizes the challenge uh, entirely and, and sees the uh, rabbis as completely consistent in their uh, position. So with that, uh, uh, we, uh, I hope we've left his edifice uh, still standing. I hope I've left everyone still awake. And uh, we'll uh, see you next uh, Matzai Shabbat. Thank you. Oh, question. Right. Correct. Yeah. Your your question is is a fundamental one. It's a very important one, um, but it doesn't change the Rambam's shita, uh, his his uh, position here. Uh, it might change the the mode of apparatus a little bit. You're saying didn't physics change? over the centuries, of course. Aristotle's authority came tumbling down in the Renaissance. Uh, actually, people like Yehuda Levi in the Kuzri were already undermining uh, his, his authority much earlier than that, or Chazbe Kreskas in the 15th century, uh, in their comments. Uh, but it, it doesn't really matter. In other words, 
uh, it's, it's true that in the 12th century there was a concept of an, author, an authoritative science. We don't have that kind of a concept. We're, you know, this is the truth. What you find in, in Aristotle's uh, principles, uh, and you have to work with that and reconcile if there's any apparent contradiction between what that says and what Revelation says. But if you have uh, now undermined, uh, changed, uh, rejected Aristotelian science and there's no more spheres and planets rotating in the spheres and all of that, um, then the, the, the uh, framework that the Rambam uses can still work with whatever is considered to be true in the sciences. Now, the, the, the shita remains the same. If indeed there are uh, truths you can point to in the scientific tradition, then those truths must still be compatible and congruent with Revelation because there is only one author of both Revelation and reason. Uh, and, and you should be able to apply those uh, philosophic and scientific principles to the demonstration of religious principles. Uh, so, you, so you do it with different content, but it should be done. Uh, uh, and and the, the more truth, you, uh, the assumption is that the more you get to truth in the philosophic tradition and in the scientific tradition, uh, the more indeed uh, you'll find that it's compatible with Revelation. So he would still use the same framework, but yeah, he wouldn't still be using ourselves today. Of the notion that that Jews that Jews that Greeks got it from the Jews. Oh. Yes. Correct. Everybody agrees on this. Uh, uh, medieval philosophers, when I said me- medieval religious philosophers, I mean, there's no other kind. The, their, uh, medieval philosophers were religious. They were either uh, Jewish, Christian, or, or, or Muslim. Uh, they, they all agreed uh, uh, that, um, they all agreed on this principle. They disagreed on other men. But they all agreed that uh, there, there are, uh, that both revelation and human reason uh, can lead you to truth and that there uh, cannot be a contradiction between both. Because there's one author, yeah, because there is one author of both. I don't think you'll find, uh, there are a couple of exceptions. Um, uh, it's called the double truth theory. There's some would say maybe there, uh, there isn't always compatibility. But the, the, the mainstream, uh, mainstream, yes, would agree with that. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so, in other words, the Verulis, Aquinas, uh, the Rambam would all uh, state that same proposition. No, because I, I'm convinced that the Rambam didn't know Kabbalah. The Rambam uh, knew uh, uh, Jewish mysticism that, that was available to him. He knew all of the, what's called Merkava mysticism, because that was edited in Gaonic times, and it, and he, uh, it was clearly available to him. That's the type of mysticism where um, you try to attain to a vision similar to that uh, that Yechezkel saw in the first chapter of his, uh, of his prophecy, of the divine realm. 
So it involves all sorts of meditative techniques and going through seven uh, different heavens until you can reach that kind of uh, apprehension. Uh, there, there, are, there are treatises about how to uh, accomplish this. It wasn't considered an easy thing. There are tefillos that we still say today that emanate from that Merkava mysticism. Uh, Hadaras Ramuna was in those texts, for example. And you can tell that's like a meditative type of, uh, of rhythm. Uh, and um, uh, that the Rambam, the Zohar, if you're talking about Zoharic Kabbalah, there's no indication that the Rambam knew it. So Zohar is not, uh, whatever the early, the, the, whatever the genesis of the Zohar traditions and however early people n- knew it, um, it was not in uh, print, in manuscript, until the, uh, the 13th century, the second half of the 13th century. Uh, the Ramban is the first to popularize uh, those kinds of uh, Kabbalistic ideas in his uh, commentary on the Torah. Uh, so the Rambam didn't have any of that. The Rambam died in 1204. Uh, and even some Kabbalim say, uh, say that. They say even though there's no Zecher to Kabbalah in the Rambam, then if he would have known it, he would have liked it. Or there's a, uh, there's a, there's a tradition, or there's a tradition that I once, I once wrote about this. There's a tradition uh, that I think you can trace back to at least the early 14th century that the Rambam um, uh, regret, uh, met somebody when he was uh, an elderly man who told him the secrets of Kabbalah and therefore he regretted everything he wrote in the Guide of the Perplexed in, in his philosophy at, at that point. Uh, but that's, you know, it, it, that only appears much later and it, it has a certain agenda, a certain purpose. The purpose is to be able to attack the Rambam, uh, his, his views, without attacking him personally. Because you could say, he, just, he probably regretted all of this anyway, uh, that what you're attacking and, and didn't hold by it anymore. So, if... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Kabbalah, I mean, people jump on him for this for different reasons. I mentioned before, Kabbalah, because they see the content of Tardes differently of Matzah Beis Matzah Makava and, uh, and uh, people who feel that you don't need this uh, extra dimension of uh, understanding in order to reach the highest level. You don't have to be a philosopher or a Kabbalist to, to be a Tzadik uh, or to be a candidate for Nebuah. Uh, but, um, but I think you have to take this in, in, together with uh, some other things the Rambam says in more detail. Like in the Mora Nebuah, I mentioned earlier part 1, chapters 31 to 34 where he talks about the sequence of studying the disciplines that are necessary in order to be able to apply these sciences to religious belief. It takes years. Uh, he, he writes there that if you wake up somebody in the middle of the night and you ask him, uh, would you like to know all the secrets of the cosmos and uh, the divine realm or whatever, so he'll say, uh, sure. But then if you tell him, okay, now you have to take the following rigorous program of uh, after knowing all of halacha, you now have to study math and logic and astronomy and physics and this and the following order over many years. So, you know, the person basically will roll over and go back to sleep. They're not, uh, people are not. So he's saying you have to do all that. 
So it's not so simple. He's not saying simply that, you know, they couldn't do it, those Tanoim, and, and we, we can just easily do it. He's saying, no, this, is, uh, this requires tremendous preparation. But if you have that preparation, he is indeed asserting that, yes, it could be done, uh, each person according to his uh, or her level. And I think, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is that a question? Uh, one more question? Okay, one more. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm just saying, in a word, no, you opened up a whole uh, big thing here. The, uh, the issue is not pagan, I think, so much as uh, dominated. I think the key word here is dominate. Because the Rambam has the so this is a fundamental principle in all of his thought, that uh, there's uh, this nexus between the uh, political conditions and the intellectual spiritual advancement. So uh, you're not going to have um, uh, intellectual uh, success uh, under circumstances where you're being dominated by other nations. Yeah, this is why the Rambam looks forward. He passes like Shmuel that uh, uh, Messianic age is characterized basically by no sheep and machia. Not that there are supernatural changes, but that you don't have political subjugation. If you're totally, uh, really free, uh, then you can concentrate on studying Torah and Chachma. And uh, then everybody can more easily achieve Olam Haba, immortality of the soul, which for the Rambam is, is, is the highest goal. So for him, I think you have to put the Dagesh on uh, dominated even more than the paganist. No, I think, um, well, it doesn't help that they're pagan nations. But even, let's say you lived in Israel, uh, B'nai Israel lived in, in Eretz Israel, and they still dominate, the Rambam has that term, in Hilchas Akam, Yad Akam Takifa, uh, in Eretz Israel, then you're still not going to have the conditions that are conducive for Nevoah or for uh, the Mashiach. Uh, so, okay. Uh, Thank you very much for okay. our most interesting and informative presentation. Thank you, Nancy. Oh, yes. Did it work?